Hello, race fans. Welcome to the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. I am your host, Scott Stiller. Thanks for finding us. We wouldn't be here tonight without the support of Flynn's Tire and Auto Centers. If you're looking for a job, Flynn's Tire and Auto is accepting applications. To apply, click the Flynn's Tire and Auto Center banner at the top of our website, pittsburghracingnow.com. We also want to thank Classic Inc. for designing the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast logo. For your screen printing and embroidery needs, give Classic Inc. a call or visit their website, ClassicIncUSA.com. Joining us tonight is Sprint Car Champion Jack Soderman Jr., who is coming off his second Lernerville Sprint Car Division Championship, but first, the only race team owner to win the 24 Hours of Daytona, Daytona 500, Indianapolis 500, Coca-Cola 600, the Brickyard 400, 12 hours of Sebring, and 24 hours of Le Mans. Pittsburgh's own Chip Canassi. Joining us today on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast, race team owner extraordinaire Chip Canassi. Chip, thanks for taking time out of your day. We really appreciate it. Uh, let's... Let's get started taking a look back. I know you're not the type of person that looks in the rearview mirror, but I just want to kind of go over last season for a couple of minutes. Obviously, a great run for the Cup team in the playoffs. Kyle had his best Cup Series finish of his career, and uh, Kurt got the one car back into the playoffs. So when you look back on last season, how do you gauge it? In terms of the NASCAR team, yeah, I would say, you know, obviously bringing Kurt on was a big shot in the arm for just the, you know, in the locker room, if, if you know, to, to coin a phrase, Kurt really, you know, picked the team up, you know, on uh, on that side, and uh, you know, he was a he was a great teammate to Kyle, and you know, Kyle could you know begin to learn some things from him. It was great to have somebody who's a former champion on the team, somebody who has the experience. He's driven all the cars. He's driven the different the different types of uh, you know. Every time they make changes on these Cup cars. You know, sometimes that puts guys out a little bit. And, and, you know, Kurt's driven all the different, you know, whether it was the car tomorrow or the, you know, with a car with a big wing, the car with a small wing, the car with a big spoiler, the car with a small splitter, and all these different machinations of cup cars, Kurt's driven them, you know. So he was a good sounding board for Kyle. And it, it, it moved the two of them up quickly uh, in, in that respect. Kind of one of those deals, no substitute for experience, for lack of a better term. Right, right, right. I guess it was good to see Kyle. It seemed like they got out of the hole last year. You know, Lady Luck obviously did not shine on them. But when it came down to crunch time, I remember you and I talking uh, on pit road at Pocono before the Indy car race. You mentioned to me, you know, they were starting to peak at the right time. It just yeah. seems like with once you get into that playoffs, you, you need not only the performance, but you also need a little lady luck. It is interesting. Like we with the format of having a win in your end, you know, you can win the, the first race of the year or you can win the, you know, 25th race of the year and you're in the playoffs. And so some of these teams, you know, it, it's better to do it earlier. I'd love to have the cushion of winning a race early and, and locking yourself into the playoffs instead of maybe waiting until Dover, you know, like we did last year, you know, working hard all season. You work just as hard, you know, and, and like you say, a little bit of lady luck brings you in here and now and then. But, you know, we had a rough run there for about three weeks. We crashed about five cars in a three-week period. And then that kind of put us in a hole you know, I want to say around June or July, and then we started to get our act together there on the 42 car. So hopefully we won't be, uh, hopefully we'll have a little more, a uh, little more going for us earlier in the season this year and not, not have to wait till late to get into the playoffs. 
because it, it lets you work on the, you know, with, with this format, if you get in the playoffs early, it lets you work on other things that you need to work on without having the pressure of having to get in and having to win a race. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but that's kind of what we're looking to, looking to do. I would think for guys like Chad Johnston and the crew chiefs, not having a big change in the car from one year to the next will be huge. Well, it's not a big change, you know, but the Chevrolets are getting a new body. So that's actually, I think that should help the Chevrolet teams this year. You know, we're, we're encouraged by what we see in the wind tunnel so far. Of course, it's not racing yet, but, um, but it, we're, we're certainly encouraged by what we see so far. We're, we're anticipating a little better performance, uh, having a little better car this year. That be surprised how that helps. There's no doubt the Chevys have been down. I mean, you see it across the board with not only your, you know, your team, but the Hendrick team and, you know, some of the other teams, Childress, you know, typically those cars are always all at the front and, you know, you could tell the Chevys were struggling a little bit. Right, right. I was going to say along those lines, they, they announced yesterday they're making the change for the short tracks, which I think should help the racing. But then again, that sends you guys back to the drawing board on what do we got to do to make our cars faster? Every time they make a change like that, you sort of throw out a bunch of notes that you have, you know, you throw them in the garbage or put them back for some other year, pay year. You know, all these times they make changes on the cars they're you know, with the, you know, more spoiler, less spoiler, you know, more splitter, less splitter. You know, all you're doing is, 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 is changing the downforce level of the car. And, and, you know, with that downforce level, changing you end up you know you might use the tires up more or less in a different cycle you know new tires instead of you know their peak performance coming on lap you know lap six it may be you know lap two and uh you, you know it may be they you know they fall off in you know if, if you have a car that's got less downforce it's going to obviously and you're 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 running them hard you're going to wear the tires out sooner with less downforce so your you know your peak performance may come you know lap 10 to 20 as opposed to 20 to 30, you know. So you, you got all these sort of notes and all this information that you, you know, you have to throw out and adopt an open mind and, 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 and understand when the, when the car is going to perform its best throughout a run. It's interesting how teams try and find that sweet spot because I was telling a couple of the younger guys I work with that I don't necessarily look at lap times when NASCAR posts them. The, the chart that I look at is 10 lap average because that seems to point to the cars that are quick over the duration of a run. Am, am I right or wrong in assuming that? I think the, the point there is, you know, in, in NASCAR, you have to get your car running on old tires because you're on old tires more than anything. And so, you know, when you put a new set of, you know, you put a new set of stickers on, you go out and you rip off a fast lap. I mean, that's great. and It looks good on the sheet, but I don't know what it means for the race because, you know, these so often you're going 40, 50, 60 laps without a stop time after time after time. And so you, you know, you have to get your car working on old tires to, uh, to have any chance at, at you know, at, at some consistency. And with that consistency, you can run at the front. Now, I know in preparations for Speed Weeks this year, big announcements for you guys uh, with Advent Health coming on to sponsor Ross in the 500, and they're going to be on right. Kyle's car in the Clash. And I know that's always good news to uh, get that stuff handled. We've had a, a nice relationship with Advent Health. Um, used to be Florida Hospital, and they changed their name to Advent Health, sort of rolling out a name that's more national in scope. They're in you know Florida, Kansas, Texas. Sort of, and, and on this sort of mode of acquiring, so it's quite a big hospital system. We're we're very proud to have them have them on board. You know, more importantly for our team, 
you know, they, they fill some gaps that Credit One or McDonald's might leave open. And it gives a guy, an opportunity for a young guy like Ross Chastain to keep him, you know, keep him tuned up and, uh, you know, and hopefully in the on-deck circle. There you go. That's exciting. I like I like the uh, analogy. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to touch on last year's IndyCar season. How would you categorize Felix's rookie campaign? There were, I mean, obviously the run at Mid-Ohio has to be at the top of the list. How would you categorize how things went for him last year? Yeah, I would say it's kind of about what I expected. You know, I might have expected a little more, uh, little more performance earlier in the year. But I think he had a, you know, he didn't have a very good Indy 500. He, he had a good Indy 500 going until about 20 laps to go. He got caught up in an accident, and it really wasn't his fault. But when you take those hits like that at Indy, you know, it tends to slow you down for a couple of weeks. And, you know, we were right in the heart of the season there. And that, that hit in May took kind of took us off the screen for June. And, uh, you know, it was kind of, uh, you know, getting back on his feet after that. And uh, so we, we sort of threw away, you know, two or three, four weeks there of good times we could have been gathering some points and some experience. I would say overall it went about as pretty much like I thought it would do. Um, I thought he had a race win in him and he probably did have a race win in him if he wasn't racing against Scott Dixon at mid Ohio. So, uh, I can't hold that against him. Uh, he's got 22 other guys that, uh, have that, have that problem. So like I said, yeah, kind of as planned. Typically consistent year for Dixon. You know, if you don't have the battery deal happen right. at road America, he probably, if he doesn't win that race, it's a sure podium. Uh, right. and talking with him, I know he wants to have the, he, he would love to have had that first Detroit race back. And I yeah. think that kind of shows what a fine line it is in the NTT IndyCar series, because if he has even a typical Dixon day at those two races, then, you know, we're talking about a whole different year. Right. Yeah. It's a four man battle for the title. Mm -hmm. So what are you looking for him this you year? Know, I mean, he's the type of guy that, that, you know, one year to the next, he responds. You know, we, we certainly know as a team what, what he's capable of as a driver. We know what we're capable of as a team. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, like, again, not taking ourselves out of races and we'll be fine. If we can if we can have good, you know, good cars, good stops, uh, we got a great driver. So, I mean, it's, all the pieces of the puzzle are there. It's not, not any magic on, on that side of the team. Uh, we know what, you know, the guy's capable of winning at any track, any day, any time. So it's just a matter of giving him the equipment and uh, building points towards the championship. I'd like to, uh, you know, I think we can come out of the block strong um, and, uh, and and take it from there. I saw you guys added uh, Mike Cannon to the engineering squad, well-respected engineer in the paddock. So uh, I know oftentimes you've talked to me about you're only as good as your people. So I guess when someone like that becomes available, you obviously have to take a look at it. No question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Mike's proven he can he can run a car. And uh, it just sort of emboldens our engineering staff there in Indianapolis. Um, we're very excited about bringing him on and excited about what he, you know, what he has to offer. You know, every once in a while, it's nice to bring somebody in from the outside and uh, get a fresh look at things. And I think that's what Mike brings. And uh, I know I'm excited. I know some of the people in Indianapolis are as well. You have to be excited, too, because the, well, I guess maybe, maybe it's a little bit of mixed emotions. Uh, Ford did not continue the GT program. So uh, the sports car operation, for lack of a better terms, is in mothballs right now. So mm -hmm. you've added the third IndyCar team for Marcus, and you had a big announcement yesterday with, uh, how do you pronounce the chocolate company? Is it Husky? Husky? Yeah, Husky. I didn't want to Husky assume. Sucks. 
So you got the big announcement with Husky Chocolate coming on board. So uh, obviously you got to be excited to not only have the third car, but also to keep uh, a lot of the key uh, members of your team on the team. You know, you hit the nail on the head, Scott. I mean, we have a, you know, I, I didn't want to send a bunch of guys home with, uh, with uh, the, you know, the, the stopping of the Ford program. And, you know, that wasn't any surprise. You know, the, the GT program in IMSA, you know, was, uh, you know, simply the a contract and that was the end of the contract. So, it was, you know, it was kind of wasn't a big surprise to anybody. I think you'll see Ford in sports car racing. You know, they're, they're, they're not out forever. I think uh, it's just a matter of uh, in IMSA right now, everybody's waiting on these 22 rules, the, the 2022 rules that are going to require a new car. So I think Ford was in a position where they didn't want to come up with two new cars, you know, one car for two years and then another car after that. So uh, I think it was a, a, a timing issue as much as anything with the GT program. Having said that, I didn't want to send a bunch of people home. And uh, an opportunity came along with Marcus Erickson. And uh, so we're able to sort of plug and play a team there. That's a quality, quality team. You know, our, our, our Ford GT team was all ex-IndyCar guys anyway. So they're all IndyCar guys at heart. So they jumped at the chance and said, hey, let's, let's, let's go IndyCar racing. So, uh, you know, we're lucky a guy with Marcus's talent comes along and, uh, you know, he's got a year under his belt. And uh, I think you're going to see a guy there that's going to start pushing, pushing Rosenquist and, and Scott. So it's good. Absolutely. It's good. Another good uh, story that's come out of Indianapolis, obviously, Penske buying the Speedway and IMS. Haven't had a chance to talk to you, talk to you since that announcement came down. Just give me your whole thoughts on all of that and the future of IndyCar and the Speedway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's real simple. It's the it's the biggest, best news ever in IndyCar racing. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. You know, I think the Hallman family did a great job in the stewardship of, of Indianapolis and the Motor Speedway and, and in this, in terms of the series. And uh, but, but I think they, you know, like a lot of businesses, they, they, they was time to, for someone else to come in and and give it an injection of, of, of fresh capital and fresh blood and uh, take it to the next step. And and I think you'll still see the Holman family involved there, the Holman-George family. You'll see certain family members, I think, that, that, that have a, a, a deep a deep sense of, of what IndyCar racing is and is all about. And you'll see them involved there, I think, for a long time. I, I, don't, think, uh, I don't think the family's going away by any stretch. On the other hand, you got a guy like Roger Penske come in that Scott, you know, obviously has has the deep pockets, has uh, you know the, the the knowledge and the understanding of what the next level of, of IndyCar racing should be, and uh, I think I think we're headed in that direction. It's great for teams, it's great for the drivers, it's great for the fans, it's great for the sponsors. It's just a good story all around. Speaking along, uh, a good story all the way around. You guys are celebrating your 30th year, and the Peterson Automotive Museum is honoring you guys with a display. I was so psyched when I saw that because, quite frankly, uh, you know, I don't think you get enough credit and your team doesn't get enough credit for what you guys have accomplished over the years. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, that's quite an honor, I'll tell you. to the uh, For those fans out there that don't know what the Peterson is, it's probably the, the foremost automotive museum in the country in Los Angeles, in the Beverly Hills neighborhood, as a matter of fact. And it's a it's a magnificent place, and I, I encourage anybody, if they're in the Los Angeles area, to go see the Peterson Museum, not just because of the, the Chip Ganassi exhibit, but, I mean, of all cars, of all sizes and shapes, I don't know, there's got to be a thousand cars there. And just 
every sort of uh, the evolution of, of, of not only cars, but car culture, if you will, and what the automobile has meant to the, the formation, you know, of the country, really, what, what the automobile has meant to, to America, to the United States, what it's meant for racing, uh, what it's meant, you know, they have, they have a whole section there of uh, famous cars from the movie business, famous cars from television, famous cars, you know, from Europe, a plethora of, of, of racing of racing cars that have a history that you know just just too lengthy to even talk about. But I mean, it's just it's it's the foremost automotive museum. You know, started by Bob Peterson, and you know uh, he was the, the the publisher of among other things, Hot Rod Magazine and Car Craft. And you know, back in the go go days of the magazine business, you know, Mister Peterson was the man. And uh, you know, just to have to have his legacy now atop such a museum is is, is is just something that's fabulous, not only for racing, but for car people in general. I really encourage people to go see see the whole museum. And, uh, you know, to have them have 10 of our cars there is uh, just a real a real honor. And uh, we're having a uh, an event there in April to kind of kick off the, uh, the, the, the opening in December. And then uh, right around the Long Beach Grand Prix, there'll be a big, uh, big opening night there again for all the racing people. So I'm pretty excited. And it's, like I said, it's, it's an honor that uh, one of the biggest honors I've ever had to tell you the truth. Well, congratulations on that. Before I let you go, I want to uh, touch on uh, the announcement was made back in December that your partner, Felix Abadis is going to retire. Felix has always been one of the greatest characters uh, oh, yeah. in the, uh, in the garage area. So I just wondered if you could talk about what he means to you and how he helped you when you got into NASCAR, uh, when you you know bought his team and uh, all of that, and how that uh, and really how he helped you with that transition. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, you know, when I when I, I bought eighty percent of the team or whatever from him back, I don't know, in two thousand, and uh, you know, it, and and you know, he was just a you know a a, a father figure with me, a uh, brother, a father, a partner, you know, a guy that did a lot for the team over the years, even being a, a, a smaller partner and not a, not even a 50% partner. But I, I think, uh, you know, I still talk to Felix every other day or so. And, uh, it's not like he's, uh, he can retire from, from racing and retire from, uh, he can retire from the sport, but he can't retire from our friendship. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's still a big part of my life and, uh, he'll be a big part of the team as long as the team's around. I know you guys are gearing up for speed weeks in a couple of weeks, and I know the uh, Indy cars are going to be hitting Sebring for some testing. Then they go to Coda, so uh, you know it's hard to believe we're a couple of weeks away before the green flag drops. So uh, obviously, we want to wish you and all of your teams the best of luck. And thanks again for taking time out of your day. I know how busy you are. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck uh, with your upcoming season. And I'll see you at the races. We'll see you at the races. Thanks, Chip. Thanks, Scott. Joining us today on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast is two-time and defending Lernerville Sprint Car Division track champion Jack Soderman Jr. Jack, thanks for taking time out of your day to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's always nice to uh, to be on any any show that they want to know uh, positive things. There's only two ways that uh, you get radio interviews or TV interviews. Usually you've done something really well or really, really bad. Well, you've done something really, really well. Last year, you grabbed the uh, Lernerville Track Championship for the second time in the Sprint Car Division. When did you first 
fall in love with racing and, and what attracted you to the sport? Uh, really, I mean, it's just like any kid that maybe their parents were really into baseball or football or anything. I grew up in a racing family. It's, uh, it's the only thing I ever knew and played baseball, played football, different things, but that was just kind of a precursor to when, when I would be able to race. So I was actually seven years old and I got a, a go-kart for Christmas or uh, my birthday. I can't remember exactly which one. I think it was my birthday because it was a little bit closer to when I could take it outside and use it. And I uh, ran around in the front yard, so on and so forth. And we ended up going to Sharon Speedway in Hartford, Ohio, actually had a racetrack in the infield for go-karts. And we went there. I ran uh, probably about three or four, about three different times. And just always, you know, if it wasn't wasn't a race car, uh, you know, I like football, like all the other things, but it's, uh, and I think my son actually has the same, same gene because it's, uh, it's something that he'll do, but he's really excited if it's a race car or a monster truck, that's where he's excited. And I was kind of the same way race cars were, you know, there was one outside in the garage, I'd help my dad. And I always looked up to my dad. My dad was my hero when I was a kid. So of course what he was doing, I always wanted to do. So something that it turned into a love and a, almost a drive and an addiction after that. But it uh, started off when I was seven. There was only about three races, and then Sharon closed that track. And it wasn't until uh, I was about 11 or 12 before I started again, got into go-karts. We ran those for a few years and did pretty well. And then an opportunity came up that uh, Vern Hawley, he had uh, leased Hickory Speedway, and they came out with a 360 sprint class. That was really much more affordable and realistic to the working working class guys. All iron, you can put a whole motor together for about $3,500 to $5,500. And uh, Donnie Kozier and Buddy, you know, Buddy Cocker ran for him forever. And it's a well iconic car. He actually was selling everything out. Car trailer was a, now this is in 92 or so. And it was a 1979 Travis Craft. I uh, had a, you know, his old resident trailer was all blue. Still had the number eight on it exactly as they ran it before. And uh, we bought that and that's how I got started. Uh, he, get, he let us do it on a payment plan that we could actually kind of make payments and pay them off. And uh, that, that got us started. That was my start. We started running at Hickory. And then from there, it's just uh, one piece at a time. I'm at where I'm at today. So you were seven years old when you caught the bug. And when you started competitively in the sprint car, you were driving like a 10, 12-year-old car. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was about 90, 94, 95. I can't remember exactly what year. It was right there when uh, Hickory kind of started. So it was probably about... Uh, I was about 16 years old when I when I first got in, and it was yeah, it was quite a quite an old car when we got in. It was a '79, and like I said, that was you know that was well into the '90s, mid '90s. So it was it was uh, well used, but it was Travis Craft that was always taken care of. Donnie always took good care of his things, and one of the first things that I did as as a kid is the way my dad taught me is we brought everything home and every bolt, every nut, the rear end, steering gear. We I tore everything apart. Everything got torn apart, checked and rebuilt so i knew exactly what kind of work went into it if i crashed it and uh know that that kind of effort that goes into those things don't just magically go back together and you know it also taught me how to do a lot of things you don't have a lot of money so if you don't have a lot of money you have to have you have to have time so instead of sending the rear ends out to get rebuilt i knew how to do that you know steering gears and pumps and it's uh i took every single piece apart and you know it's uh it also brought my, me and my dad a lot closer, and it kept me out of trouble. Growing up in a bad area of Youngstown, Ohio, you didn't have time to get in trouble because you had to take care of the racing stuff. What's really cool about is how your dad has mentored you along through this process. Talk a little bit about him, and I understand he was a racer, so talk a little bit about his career 
and how it influenced you. Yeah, it was my grandfather. He was kind of into horses and everything. He thought the race car was probably the dumbest thing in the world. It was, uh, he just said, you know, you're taking a perfectly good piece of equipment. You're just trying to ruin it. So he started all the way from when he was 14. He actually started in motorcycles. And uh, as he raced motorcycles, that's how he ended up in sprint cars. It's a story that he's told many times, but it was Pete DeBresco did uh, welding for Travis, uh, Floyd Travis, back at uh, that one time. Yeah, that was 1970. He had gotten an accident flat tracking around a TT scrap when he had a, his wire, his jaw was all wired shut. So when he went there, he said, hey, Jack, he goes, why don't you get in the, get in to a sprint car, get into these things where you have a cage around you, be a little bit safer. Because back in those days, motorcycle was dangerous. Sprint cars were safe, I guess. That's how, <laughs> that's how they looked at things. <laughs> he said, ah, no, I don't want to get into the door slammers. And, you know, he just kind of knew of maybe NASCAR on TV. You know, he didn't really know that much about it. So he said, no, he goes, that's not what a sprint car is. He goes, be here. He goes, this Saturday, they have a hundred lapper over at Mercer Raceway. He goes, you're going to come with me and check it out. And at that time, uh, he was always flat track motorcycle racing. So when he went, he said, without the wings, the wingless cars at that time, there was no such thing as a wing sprint car. So he said, they're backing them in the corner. It's just like the bikes. He's like, oh, this is awesome. This is great. He said, well, I know somebody that owns one. See if uh, you can talk to him. And that was Vic Eicher. And then he went and he talked to Vic Eicher and went there many times. Vic didn't have uh, really too much interest in putting a young guy in it and putting all the work into it. So the same way that he taught me is how Vic kind of taught him. He said, okay, I'll give you a shot, kid. What I'm going to do, you come down here, you made him tear the whole car apart. And this was during a race season. So they didn't even come out until the, I think the last two nights of that season. He went to Mercer uh, twice at the end of the season because he had him tear the whole car apart all the way rear end, everything, and put it back together. Kind of the same way that he kind of took those teachings when I got started. He kind of kind of paid that forward and, and uh, paved the way of having a, d- a little bit different work ethic. And, you know, it's uh, definitely a lot of things. And Vic was, Vic Eicher is actually the one that gave my dad a shot. And, and from there, he uh, he kind of snowballed and did everything he could to race. And that's, that was pretty much all that uh, he cared about his whole life, same way. So. This is a, that's, that's an awesome story. So I really appreciate you sharing it. So you get to the point where you jump into the sprint car, you start running competitively. And when did you start to kind of figure out, hey, I can be pretty good at this. You know, I can win. I can start. I can win some of these races. <laughs> oh, I'm still trying to figure that part out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought of myself as better of anybody else, better than anybody else. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes things work out. And I just like the competitiveness. I like the, the challenge of it. Uh, you know, there's. 23 other guys on a track, but it's really every time you go on a track, you have to beat the track. If they're faster, they're going to beat you anyway. But if you give the track and you've caught up with the track and uh, in the setup and you drive well, so you're really facing yourself on the track more so than anybody else. They're just there. You just uh, kind of don't let that really bother you on who's there. It doesn't matter if it's Donnie Shots or it's a local show. It doesn't really matter. You just race as hard as you can against the track and everything else kind of falls in its suit. But I'm not uh, definitely not one of the guys that thinks I'm cocky or anything like that. I mean, it took uh, you know, it took a lot of years. I didn't win my first 410 race until 1999. Uh, won, I think, my first championship at Sportsman Speedway in 2000. And then you take the big jump before uh, before I won anything else. I didn't win a race at uh, Lernerville Speedway for 10 years. I won my first race at Tri City Speedway last uh, not last year, year before. They're not easy to come by. It's uh, you definitely appreciate that you could uh, still win races and here I'm 25 years later or whatever it is it's uh from I'm 16 I'm 42 now so it's 
I'm going on, I think, 21 years of racing sprint cars um, myself. And it's, uh, you don't count the wins. You just appreciate everything that you can, uh, you can accomplish while you're here. When did you move into the 410s, roughly, age-wise, year-wise? Well, it was about 95 in the 360s. And then what happened is Hickory Speedway and Tri-City had different rules. And a lot of things happened there where Hickory kind of closed down. Tri-City was closed closed down and there was no there was no 360s. So I was running against the 410s with 360s. And what we did is we actually, my dad was a crank grinder and a machinist by trade. So we started stroking the 360s and the 383s. And we just started running against the 410s at that point. And then a guy by the name of Timmy Kuhn, Gave me a shot at Sharon Speedway one night with aluminum 410. Mikey Lutz was running his car, but he had another ride out east, and they happened to come to Sharon Speedway. So he had the car open, and he gave me a shot. He let me get in. Just told me, he said, hey, he goes, well, how do you run? I said, well, not too bad. I said, I finished right behind Mikey last week, and, you know, top five. And so he goes, well, he goes, okay, I'll give you a shot. He goes, go pick a pill and don't crash all my stuff. <laughs> and so <laughs> Gotta love that. I got in. Yeah, and it's, uh, we ended up, we won the heat race. Uh, a lot of good guys back sharing at that time as you know rodney duncan was there mikey and bobby allen used to always come in and we won the heat race and after we won the heat race we came in and uh, i think we ran six or so in the feature and a rock went through the oil filter and that kind of i had to pull out after that but we were running really well and from that point on we kind of had a uh relationship with uh with timmy and he had a an old beat up aluminum 410 that he had built didn't make a whole bunch of horsepower but it had pretty decent stuff in it and it's uh you know i say we saved up a bunch of money bought that and that was that whole switch and went full into 410 racing probably came about uh, 98 i'd say 99 right there when we won when i won my first 410 feature that was at uh, 1999 that was that aluminum motor and we had just bought it that year so 99 so now that's where that's where uh We've been 410 racing ever since. So basically, the last year when you won the track championship at Lernerville, it was essentially your 20th anniversary in the 410s. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's, uh, I would have to look at it. I never really paid attention to that either. But yeah, it was, uh, you get uh, 20 years in, you just, uh, you stop looking at how long you've been in there because that just tells you how old you are. I used to be the young kid that was, uh, that was in the uh, pits. Now, now I'm the old veteran. Do you find the young guys coming up to you and, you know, picking your brain a little bit or, you know, asking you this or that and trying to help uh, get some of that veteran wisdom to help, uh, you know, navigate their young careers? Yeah, I mean, you definitely have that. And it's uh, and I've I've even searched people out. I mean, I help Cy Lynch a lot. You know, we go to all races a lot. He's a really good kid. <clears throat> His dad's working and everything. So he didn't have a lot of influence or outside influence. He's worked really hard. And AJ Flick and I mean, the list goes on. Darren Gallagher, a lot of the kids, a lot of the guys that uh, that I was around, I've always tried to help out. And, you know, when I was helping AJ, we were actually going for a championship against each other. And I was always asked, you know, hey, you know, well, why do you help your competition? They can beat you. I said, well, I said, I don't look at it that way. I, I said, if I'm beating them because their car's all messed up or car's not handling or something, I haven't really beat anybody. That I'd rather beat somebody at their best. At the end of the night, if we're both in the pits and they can say, you know, I gave it my all. We had everything, and Jack was just better. That gives me a lot more pride than beating somebody that, you know, the motor's missing or the car's not handling well at all. Well, anybody can do that. That's not really proving that you've uh, you've done anything competition-wise. So if you're afraid of competition in racing, I've always said you should probably buy a boat and go fishing or do something else. One of the things that always strikes me, and you, you've touched on it a little bit about helping the younger guys, is when – 
you know, it doesn't matter what division it is. When somebody has an issue in a heat race or, you know, even trying to get the car onto the track, it amazes me how many guys from other teams just swarm around that car. They're pulling rear ends out, pulling axle shafts out. And it's, it's, it's a team effort from all the teams to try and help the racer out. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, competitive camaraderie is what I call it? Well, it's really, it's, if you look at the racing industry overall, it's, it's more of a family atmosphere than a business. It's not a cutthroat, you know, once you get to a higher level, you know, it's a little bit different, but when it comes down to helping the racer out there, you've been there, you know, you've broken something, you traveled all that way, you want to race and there's you and, you know, like under my circumstance, me and my dad are the ones that are there all the time and kind of show up. My dad's 72 years old. I have a partner in the team, Mark, that comes in and a lot of times it's just us at the track. And if you break a rear end, it's very hard for, uh, one, you know, one or two people to, to get that done. So you've been on the other side of that shoe. So when you see somebody struggling doing that, you want to help them get out on the racetrack. They're there to race. You know, that's you're you're there. And it's it's more of a family atmosphere. Like I said, it's, uh, you know, another time that you're going to see that. And I've actually experienced it myself. Unfortunately, I've been hurt in, uh, at different times in my career is, you know, the fans, the promoters, the racers, when they kind of gather around you when you get hurt you know and they take uh, collections and things like that there is no two ways about it when i got hurt in 2011 i wasn't able to work i wasn't able to do anything i was kind of learning how to rewalk i was blind for a while there's not too much you can do professionally to keep a roof over your head if it wasn't for the fans and the racers and everybody else i wouldn't have keeping a uh, a roof over my head so that's something that i will always be in debt for all, to all the race fans and all the all the racers all my competitors it's uh but that family atmosphere is kind of, you want to help the guy next to you. And just like in any family, when you see guys that might be mad at each other, there might be some words or fights. I don't know anybody that hasn't had something like with their brother or their sibling the same way. You know, it's, it's really the same, same, uh, kind of atmosphere. And you want to, you just try to help everybody out as much as you can. And, and they, they'll help you in the same way. It's, uh, that's just the, that's the one thing that's, great about you know many of the things that are great about racing but that's one thing that's great about racing is you have that uh you know i've went to tracks that nobody really even knew me down you know southern ohio west virginia or wherever it may be that it's not a guy that knows me on a regular basis but you know you're going over and helping them they're coming over and helping you and they've never even met you it's just that you're a racer that's that's what it is i find that very unique versus the other competitive sports you know the traditional stick and ball sports you would never see, uh, you know, for lack of a better, you would never see the Steelers try and help the Browns, so to speak. No, you're not gonna not gonna see that too often. It's uh, which I think the Browns might be uh, uh might be helping Pittsburgh here the last few years just by <laughs> how, how they play. But it's uh, it's just a different mentality. It's you know, that's one team against another. They're not going to give them any advantage to beat them. I mean, obviously, it's how they make their living and so on and so forth. But when you look at racing, there's there's 30 other teams that are in the pits you help that one guy it doesn't mean that you're giving him a 50 50 chance to beat you it's he still has to do the job you know it's everything still has to come together for him but at least get him out onto the track and it's just a different mentality i believe across the board it's it's just a camaraderie whether you like motorcycle riders or you know it's just it's a it's a different mentality and different camaraderie that that people have in the racing industry than they do in maybe stick and ball sports when you look back on the last 20 years, how has the sport 
changed and what have been some of the things that you've had to maybe adjust to try and keep uh, I don't know necessarily want to say keep pace with it but can you talk a little bit about the changes over the last 20 years and uh, any any trends that you may see you know it going this way or that way so to speak I mean it's probably and I can't say it's all positive but some of the negative uh, trends that I see now that worries me more than anything is just the expense it's uh, the expenses have went beyond if you look back in the 70s and 80s even 90s there was a lot of gas station owners small business owners there was a lot of car owners that gave opportunities for drivers now most of the cars you see out there even on a world of all or all-star tour they're pretty much family owned it's they're putting every dime everything that they have into it well there's a ceiling to that no matter what and if you have a few corporate guys that are able to spend a lot of money or have a corporate backing to do so it excels that past the point where you know a lot of those owners even big owners whether it be Hearts, hamilton likers it's i mean you can go on a lot of legendary owners that had to get out of this sport simply because it was too expensive and it's uh that's the only thing that you know everybody's excited they say oh you know ford's coming out with a new motor toyota's coming out with motor said so every time they've done that and they've had corporate influences in this racing you got to remember the motors have jumped up about twenty thousand dollars for someone like myself that you know goes to work every day it's taken me twenty years piece by piece to gather what i have and i'm always you know five maybe ten years behind in technology i can't go buy you know a sixty thousand dollar new motor it's just not even that it might as well be a million so i have to kind of wait those five years until they're selling some of their stuff you know some of the different teams that are going to be buying those motors i have to wait till they're selling their used motors so i can so i have a chance to buy those you know and it's uh even on the used side when you're in $20,000, $30,000 range motor, that's that's a huge amount of money. I'd like to see more opportunities. There's probably a lot of kids, uh, a lot of guys out there, a lot of a lot of girls out there that have a lot of talent. And they may never get the opportunity to even get in one to show their talent. They'll never get the opportunity to sit in a seat like they may have back at one time because there was a lot of owners that didn't drive the cars. And uh, same thing goes on the owner's side. You know, there's a lot of guys that would love to own a sprint car and they'd love to go racing or a modified or a late model. And it's just not in the cards because it's too expensive. And that's, that's the one negative trend that I definitely see is the expenses never stop. And there's no way for the track to keep up with the expense of what the racers, <clears throat> racers are kind of their own worst enemy as the expenses we've said, oh, well, we need that. You know, oh, these outlaw guys have that. So we have to have that. And everybody's trying to keep up with that, that benchmark, that bar. But at the same time, the racetrack promoters and sanctioned bodies aren't making any more money because we made, we were buying more expensive things. So the purse money doesn't keep up anywhere near to where, where the expense on the cars are. And it just makes it really, really tough. I mean, the people that are still involved in racing now and the positive side of it is it's not just something that they're just doing because they don't want to buy a boat or go fishing. They wanted to do something else. It's you have to have a true love and a determination uh, to, to do racing today. And you really got to put your nose down and fight for it. And, uh, you know, a lot of the new, a lot of the young kids that are coming in now are, you know, they have that determination and it's very hard to beat them. That's the one thing about uh, getting old is I'm sure I'm not getting any faster. It's uh, I may be increasingly getting slower as these guys are getting faster. So you adapt to, you know, the driving, the setups change a little bit. But other than that, it really comes down to the same thing. It's just on the expenses that makes it a little bit tough. You know, along those lines, if a guy's not working on his car, or he's got a lot of deep pockets behind him. 
I sense sometimes from some of the other competitors that there's not that respect for the other competitors' equipment. You know, the guy that doesn't have as much funding as maybe that particular person. So there's, I, I don't want to say it's a lack of respect, but it's it's kind of one of those deals where, you know, you're racing. Uh, uh, this is, uh, for one driver, it may be everything that he has is thrown into that car. And then for the highly funded driver, you know, he's just going out there and throwing it into the corner. And if, you know, he tears a car up, no big deal. He can go, they can get some more pieces and parts and they can put it back on there. So there's a, a delicate balance, I think, there with uh, some of the competitors in terms of respecting your other competitors and their equipment. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, do, do you take more chances if you got six more sitting at home and, you know, you can just go get another one? It's not really that big of a deal where, you know, if I if I wipe out a car, it's going to take me, you know, two weeks or a month to save up to try to, to get that, that piece back together. But it's, I wouldn't say it's a lack of respect. I mean, I respect a lot of the, even the kids that have a lot of money available and they have a lot of, uh, you know, when Kyle Larson comes back and he has the money in the pockets that NASCAR gives him the abilities, you still have to respect that he is an extremely good racer. <clears throat> you know, I still have the respect for the racer. It's more, and maybe not too many racers would uh, admit it, it's more of jealousy. I envy the guy that can do that. I'd love to be able to, to be running third and go ahead and take my chance to win that race. And if I crashed, I crashed. Or now, you know, I got to think, use my head a little bit, take that third place that day and not really take dumb chances to try to win the race and know that there's another race the next night. And, you know, try to win that night, try to do something, you know, more positive and catch up on it a little bit more that night. So there's a lot of envy, I would say, and, and jealousy more so than, uh, than anything else. It's just like, oh, you know, he don't have to worry about it. He'll wipe out his car and he'll just, he got another one. He'll go, you know, daddy and something that you hear a lot of, oh, daddy will just buy him a new one. Mm-hmm. Well, daddy had to work for that money. Daddy took the chance. He opened up a business and it became successful. So I can't hold that against anybody. You know, I had the, I had the same opportunity to stick my neck out and start a business and do that too. And I was racing and doing other things. So I didn't do that. So I can't really hold that against them, but I do, do feel envious of somebody that has the ability to, to do that. You know, it's like, oh, this car, you know, it doesn't work. So we're just going to buy a new one. You know, I, I could never do that. I just got to figure out how to make that car work. Even if it's someone that's fighting me, <laughs> it's just, it's a little bit different world when it's, uh, you know, when you have, don't have to worry about the expenses quite like uh, somebody that, you know, like myself or somebody that works on a daily basis. And it takes me 20 years to gather the pieces that I have. Somebody else can just go out and buy better than I have. That's never even seen a race car. They can just go five year better technology than I have and set it on a track and go racing. It's a, it's more of a, an envious thing than it is a lack of respect. I can't say I don't respect them because they, they've worked hard and became successful in, in business and then came over to the racing world. But I am envious of them being able to do that. I'd love to be able to do that. Now, I know you have some sponsors that help you get your car to the track. <laughs> and taking a look at 2020, uh, give us an idea of what you have planned for the season. And uh, uh, are your is Glassmere returning? They're going to help you out again this year? Yeah, yeah, Glassmere's on board. Actually, all the sponsors are back on board. We have uh, Glassmere Fuel, Economy Tooling, Townsend Gas and uh, Oil, CSI Shocks, Kaiser Wheels, uh, Gressman Power Sports is the uh, motors. We did pick up a new uh, uh, Y-Town powder coating, uh, which is all the powder coating 
and they do absolutely great job that we've had had uh, some old front axles that I have that look brand new. So there's a lot of parts that look brand new on the car that aren't brand new. And that's, that's something that uh, as a working guy, I definitely, definitely appreciate, but it's without, you know, the partners in a team, without the sponsors and all the marketing partners that I have and everybody that helps me, you know, Larry at top flight wings have weighed at uh, Kaiser wheels. You have, I mean, it's just Franklin rear ends. The list goes on and on. That really helped me get there. One of the biggest things and a lot of, guys forget when you listen to any of these interviews or victory lanes is my family takes a lot more sacrifices than probably anybody or you know a sponsor gives you the marketing aspects that's a business decision but when it comes down to it when daddy's not around because he's racing or he's in the shop working and you're playing a baseball game and you don't make every baseball game you don't make every football game because you're trying to get the car ready and you're going racing those are a lot of the sacrifices that the family makes so it's you have to have a really strong family to. You have to be a, a strong uh, a person, man or woman, to be with a uh, with a racer and the family and everything. They make a lot of sacrifices that on the backside people don't see. Speaking of family, racing is a big family sport in terms of not only in the garage area but also in the stands. For everybody that's going to listen to this and for the casual sports fan at home. Why should they, on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, make a trip to Lernerville, make a trip to Mercer, head out to Sharon? I struggle sometimes trying to explain to the stick and ball sport people how exciting it is. And 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 I said it kind of almost will remind you a little bit of hockey because the heat races and the you know the 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 mains are not that long, so there's a lot of action packed into a short period of time and above that i mean you can still take a family of four to the track and it's not costing you 100 bucks 200 bucks yeah it's uh, i mean and they all have their place the baseball and sticks sports uh football baseball basketball whatever they may be going to it's you know but then that's something that they do maybe once a month once every three months six months whatever it may be but the way that i explain it is back in the roman days going way back is you could watch a lot of different things you can watch them race chickens, they, whatever they may be. But when it came down to it, where they sold out and where everybody wanted to go to is the gladiator game. Well, yeah. I take dirt racing kind of as the gladiator games. It's, you know, you don't have one team against another. You have 24 different teams, different livelihoods, different uh, lives that are actually going for the same goal. <clears throat> so it's very compelling and exciting on that side. And the family atmosphere you're going to find in the grandstands is unlike anywhere else. If you get hurt at a football game i've never seen a collection i've never seen anybody gather i've never seen any anything like that happen i've only seen that in motorsports that's the same camaraderie that people have in the grandstands when you know you've had somebody that's been a longtime fan racing you know uh they get sick and they can't work things like that it's the same as the racers i've seen people really gather around them and, and take care of them it's <clears throat> it's a different atmosphere it's almost like football, baseball, and a lot of the other sports that are out there on a professional level is that's a business interaction. Just like if you went to Walmart and bought something, they're not going to treat you poorly because you're buying something off of them. Where racing's more of the family atmosphere, like, hey, come on in, have something to eat. It's, it's just a, a different mentality when, when you go around. I mean, that's, and people that don't know racing or have never been there don't ever get the opportunity to see that part of it. That's a great point that you bring up. And, you know, one of the things we're trying to do here at Pittsburgh Racing now is we're trying to generate more publicity, more interest for 
all of the local racers, all of the local tracks, so we can get the fans out there because, you know, it's a cycle where we need the fans to show up to the tracks to give the sponsors the return on their investment, but it also helps the purse, which helps the drivers in terms of actually being able to, I don't want to say make money, but actually make the business proposition, uh, you know, more palatable, let's say. So, uh, you know, the more people that we can get out to the track, the more folks like yourself that we can have on the show and that we can tell their story out there. I, I, I think all of that collectively can help local racing. And, you know, when you were talking over the years about how you were mentioning tracks that were open and closed and open, have reopened, some have closed again. I think it's really important for people in their local communities to support all of these community assets, whether it be your local high school, you know, football team, baseball team, whatever it may be, but it's also your local racers. It's also your local businesses. Uh, they're going to be there for the long haul, and they're going to be the ones that have your back, like you mentioned. You know, it's everybody, and it's. I went to a lot of meetings with a lot of the racetracks. I'm actually helping a lot of the racetracks uh, now because I I see that as a, as a, a horrible trend. Over the, you know, you can go on facebook and there's literally a site that says lost speedways and you look at the amount of tracks that have closed in the last 20 years it's astronomical you know not just in this area everywhere what guys gotta kind of stop separating is they say you know all the tracks open and they have a business that's what brings us in and if they bring us in and we bring the fans in they gotta stop that separation of everything of oh fans keep the gates open the gates being open keep you know get us in but everybody had their part it was like separate departments in a in a business well the marketing department that's their job that's what they do uh sales department that's what they do you know and so on and so forth they gotta look at it a little bit different and say well if you work together you're going to be a much stronger team than if you're all in these separate silos like oh well he's it's not my responsibility to keep you know if in any business you you always have those guys that, uh, that's not my job well if it's it may not necessarily be your job on paper but if things don't change and get positive nobody has a job because the business closes what did that do so you put the extra effort and you help those racetracks promote you help the racetracks come up with different ideas there in turn uh, and you see it recently now is you know the racetracks are helping the race teams you know they're coming up with bigger bigger purses and, and helping as they come up with those bigger purses and they're helping you your job is not done by just running the race get on your social media let them know the, the good things that they do. Uh, social media is a very strong, very good thing that came out, but it could be just as negative as positive. And 90% of what I see, you have a great night at the racetrack as a fan or a driver or whatever it may be. Everything's done good. I don't see anything go up to advertise that. The only time I see something advertised is when you have something to complain about. You know, say, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, it's uh, positive reinforcement or it's constructive criticism well it's not if you're not doing anything positive that's just negative you're just saying oh well the track was super you know oh, it was really dusty you know I, I don't know why anybody would go there well if you're saying that people that have never been to the track they're not going to go to the track now because the only thing they see is oh that track was dusty it's horrible this is the worst thing i ever did but all those good nights nothing said take those nights say something and go back to the same rule of back in the day of if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Very powerful statement you just made right there. And I, and I agree 110%. Uh, 
celebrate the victories, celebrate the good stuff. Uh, there's enough negativity in this world. Yeah, you can. If you have those negative aspects, go to the promoter. Don't go on social media and, and throw it out to 5,000 people you're friends with that, that grows and now 50,000 people seen it after it's all said and done. Go to the promoter, you know, spread the positive on social media. Let, let them know that they're doing a good job. And if there's something that you didn't agree with and there's other people that may be there that don't agree with, go to the promoter, go to the track, go to the management there and have that conversation with them. You didn't even give them the opportunity to fix anything. You just went online and bashed them in front of a bunch of people. You got on your soapbox and you wanted to feel important for the next you know, 15 minutes. Well, that 15 minutes of you feeling important is very detrimental to a business. So maybe talk to the business and see if you can come to a, an agreement and change something there before you go on there and you hurt their business. And now they can't change it because you just cost them more money that they would have used to fix it in the first place. So it's, you know, it's people have to think a little bit better of their actions when they're doing things like that. Well, you touched on something too, because as a representative of your sponsors, you're walking a fine line there. And I think some of the younger guys forget that, that you don't want that to come back and haunt you at some point in time when you're sitting in front of someone asking them for a check. Uh, it can be very detrimental, and we've seen it all the way up to the uh, strongest levels, you know, to the top level of NASCAR where, you know, you get one of the drivers does something for one of their sponsors, and the next thing you know, that sponsor's bailed on that team. They've moved on to another team because they weren't representing their brand the way they wanted. So I think that's uh, you bring up a great point, and I think it's something that a lot of the younger racers need to keep in the back of their mind. Yeah, well, it's and that's again comes with, uh, you know, if you have the finances behind you where you don't necessarily need help, then it may not be that important to you. Uh, that you could do it on your own. And if uh, so, you kind of say and do what you want, where you got to remember, there's a lot of guys out there that the only reason we're there is because those sponsors, well, those sponsors are advertising to the people that you're being negative to that you're taking away from, you know, a lot of them sponsor the racetracks as well. So if you're speaking bad about who they're advertising with, and you're speaking bad about the people that they're advertising to, you're pretty much doing the opposite of positive marketing for any company that's on your car. You're giving it a, a very bad outlook. I mean, in social media or anything, it's uh, right now at the Chili Bowl, there's a lot of great positive stories at the Chili Bowl right now, but there's only one that everybody's stuck on. And it was something that was said that didn't have any negative you know, meanings towards anybody. But what, you know, the words that were said, that sponsor pulled out and pulled the whole car and everything right out of the show. And there's something that it's positive. It may be possible that when something like that happens, that may be a company that was sponsoring a race team for the first time. So they went through this very negative aspect by sponsoring a race team. It may be the last time they ever give any opportunity for motorsports marketing at all. So, you know, uh, I did that once and this is what happened. I, I, I'll never do that again. I'll go buy a billboard or I'm, I'm going to spend that money somewhere else. You bring up a great point. I think fans can learn a little bit from that too. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, if it's maybe it's a sponsor on a car that you don't root for that particular driver, just because you don't root for the driver doesn't mean it's a bad uh, company. And, you know, you, we need all those companies involved in mo motorsports marketing. So support those companies. You know, there's many competitors that I race against on a regular basis to try to beat, but when it comes time to purchase them, I go to their sponsors place because they're involved in motorsports 
And I want that to be a positive aspect for that company, whether who, who they're racing against or who you like as, as a fan, you're still showing them that you got into motorsports and it's a much more impactful marketing plan than $5,000 a month for a billboard. You know, this, this had much more impact for you. So, you know, pull them towards racing, not push them away. Great point. Let's uh, turn the page, take a look. Uh, what are your plans for 2020? How many nights a week are you going to try and get out there? And uh, uh, what have you figured out up to this point? You know, it's hard to believe, but really it's, you know, three months we're going to be on the track. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, this year is actually not real bad for the local uh, racers here in the west of Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio areas because we have, you know, with Tri-City Speedway opening up and running just about every Sunday, uh, we have a Friday, Saturday, Sunday track and with some big shows on Thursdays and there's a lot of races. Uh, I mean, looking at my schedule, it's not completely done. Not all the tracks have it out, but I estimate it's going to be about 60 to 65 races that, that I actually have on a local schedule where I don't have to travel quite as much as I did previously. You know, it's, I am going to go down to Southern Ohio some, I plan on going down to probably Virginia motor speedway, maybe New York a little bit, but nowhere near where if you wanted to race that day, you had to go there. Now you have, you know, Lernerville's running on Friday, Saturday, you have uh, Mercer's running some shows, Sharon Speedway's running some shows, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania Motor Speedway is going to be running uh, three shows I've seen. You know, we'll be at those shows and then uh, Tri-City on Sunday, and then I can kind of fill in with bigger shows. So it's uh, it's actually a really positive, good thing to see that these tracks are opening up. And now, as racers, it's our turn to support them. So, I mean, I always... I've always been a guy, if I can, if I'm not working and I can get to a race, it's, I want to be at every race every day. You know, I just, uh, that's just my, my mentality. And it's, uh, it's what I like to see. And I understand that not every team out there, you know, maybe they have one motor, one car and they have to pick and choose what they can run. <clears throat> but it's, uh, what's nice is now with the purses kind of growing and getting where we can need, you're going to see, I think a lot more support. Because they don't have to choose, okay, I can only run one or I can only run two nights a week. If they can make enough on Friday to go Saturday, they go racing on Saturday. If they can make enough on Saturday to go on Sunday, they do so. And then if they're lucky enough to make you know, make enough money on Sunday, that gets them back to the track on that next Friday. And that's, I mean, we did it. Nobody maybe in the last five or ten years is used to that, but we used to do that. All, that was every week. You know, that was three nights a week was a normal occurrence here in western Pennsylvania. You know, you had whatever it be, Lernerville, Sharon, Tri-City, uh, Lernerville, Mercer, Tri-City, all the tracks in the area. But we, we ran that every week. That was something that we did. And it's, uh, you know, the racing addiction is no different than any other addiction. It's just we don't have a rehab. You just run out of money. <laughs> so long as you can keep the money there, you can keep racing. On that note, Jack Soderman Jr., we appreciate the time. Uh, Two-time and defending Lernerville Sprint Car Division champion. We look forward to seeing you at the racetrack in 2020. Thanks for taking the time to join us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. You are on the inaugural podcast. Uh, our other guest is going to be Chip Ganassi, so we're excited about it. So you're on with some uh, strong company here. Yeah, it's uh, Chip's been involved in racing. and probably has a lot of outlooks on in many different forms of racing, so I look forward to that too. Yeah, it's great that, uh, you know, he was up at Lernerville when Larson came into town. And, uh, you know, I was talking to him about what we've got going on here with uh, our website. And uh, he thinks it's phenomenal that we're trying to pump up the local racing. So we appreciate you taking time out. And we appreciate you helping spread the word about local racing in western Pennsylvania and Ohio, the tri-state area. Uh, we look forward to seeing you at the track. And best of luck in 2020. Oh, thanks. I look forward to being seen. and going to have fun and I'd like to uh, see yourself and all the fans and everybody out there again. Excellent. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jack.
Thank you. Thanks for joining us, race fans. Don't forget to check out our website, PittsburghRacingNow.com, the tri-state area's source for local racing news, as well as the latest in the world of NASCAR, IndyCar, and sports cars. Talk to you next week.